0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. Today is a terrific episode that deals with animal language and cognition. It's also special because I got to interview my mentor and former advisor, Kon Labochikov, which was a real treat. So let's get going. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Señor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Growing up, I always assumed that other animals could talk, and it never occurred to me that there was going to be some kind of controversy over whether other animals had language When I went to graduate school, I was really lucky to work with somebody who was at the forefront of studying and demonstrating that other animals have really complex communication that is the same as language. Now, I wasn't there to study language in other species, but I became part of that work. And over time, as I was studying my prairie dogs, I realized that not only do other species have language, but individuals have their own signature voice. After spending hours and hours sitting out, watching and listening to these prairie dogs, I could tell when a familiar animal was vocalizing just by the tone of their voice. I recently had a similar experience where I was able to start identifying individuals, but this wasn't on a research project. It was just at home listening to a group of coyotes that would come by a couple times a day and night um, for a few months. And, you know, so coyotes are really common in Tucson, Arizona. And I just felt really special that this particular group would come by certain times of day that I could count on to then watch them. And there was one individual that really stood out. Now I called him, and that was because that was his voice, his signature call. And the reason I got to know it so well, him or her, was because often this particular individual would get separated from the rest of the group and in an effort to reconnect and find them again, it would call very, very loudly and in a slightly panicked way that would become more increasingly frantic until off in the distance, somebody from his family or her family group would call back and then they would start running away towards that sound, calling all the way. And this particular individual just had a really unique voice and a unique call. Now we know from uh, studies on vocalizations in wolves and coyotes and many other species, dolphins, prairie dogs, Um, that individuals have a signature voice, much like we recognize certain people's voices, not only family members and friends, but there are some celebrities that have unique, distinctive voices. And so when you just hear them narrating, you know exactly who that is. And that was how I felt about who I called, and um, after a while, I don't know what happened, but I stopped hearing that particular coyote. And I was very sad because I I suspected that something must have happened or maybe in a wonderful world, he or she moved on and joined another group or went off on their own. But for a brief time, I could count on always hearing his or her voice every single day. So today, in honor of (laughs) the coyote, um, I want to talk more about animal language, cognition, and why some scientists have been and still are pretty resistant to acknowledging that other species do in fact talk and frankly have a lot to say. So I want to welcome someone that's done a substantial amount of research on animal language, Khan Slobodchikov. He's CEO of Zulingua. And author of Chasing Dr. Doolittle. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, this is great. And we'll talk about how we know each other a little later. Um, but first, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about is how people choose their professions or their area of study. And so, how did you get to the path of studying animal language?
1: Well, it's a rather long path, actually. Uh, The path started when I came to this country. I was born in China and I spoke fluent Russian, but I spoke not a word of English. And when I came to this country, my parents plopped me down into public school in one of the beginning grades. And at the time, apparently... Teachers thought that you should be genetically programmed to speak English. And if you can't speak English, there must be something wrong with you. So I was learning to speak English and I was hesitating as I spoke because what would happen is that I would translate from English into Russian and then think of my answer in Russian and then translate it back into English, which took a a little bit of time. Mm So the teachers decided to check with a eminent child psychologist. And this eminent psychologist had the theory that anybody, any kid who speaks a second language invariably has to stutter. Never mind that there are kids all over the world who speak four or five, six different <laughs> languages and don't stutter. Right. He felt that that was the valid theory. Okay, so my teachers took me out of class and put me into a class for stutters where I learned all kinds of techniques like taking a deep breath or snapping my fingers and so on so that I wouldn't stutter. And I tried to explain to them and my parents tried to explain to them. Fortunately, my parents spoke excellent English, but it didn't matter because Mm -hmm. an eminent psychologist had pronounced that I should be a stutterer. Okay. So I couldn't get out of that class for a couple of years until finally my pediatrician, who happened to come from a very prominent social family in the city where I was and knew all of the school board personally, had heard me speak Russian without stuttering. And so he was outraged at this. Mm -hmm. And he contacted the principal and said, I know that this kid doesn't stutter. And if you don't get him out of there immediately, I'm going to contact all of the school board personally and bring up his case. Amazingly enough, the next day I was out of stuttering classes and I never went there. And at the time, I was rather bitter about the whole experience. Sure. But it taught me a very valuable lesson. It taught me the lesson that eminent authorities could be wrong in their theories and that we don't necessarily have to accept their theories at face value. We can look for the evidence of the theories. And if the evidence contradicts the theories, we can reject the theory and go with something else. And down the road, that brought me to animal language in the sense that when I first started with looking at prairie dogs, I knew that prairie dogs had one call, which they gave for any predator. It sounds sort of like a bird chirping, sort of cheep, cheep, cheep. Mm-hmm. And the prevailing idea then was that this was just A call that they give for fear if they're frightened by something a coyote a hawk whatever they give this cheap 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 thing as an expression of their emotional fear and at the time I accepted that but then I started thinking about it and the cheap sounded sort of different Mm -hmm. so I knew that Some people in California had found that a ground squirrel in California, the California ground squirrel, had two types of calls of alarm for two different kinds of predators, one for, uh, sorry, one for terrestrial predators and one for aerial predators. And I started to think maybe prairie dogs have the same. So... I set up some experiments and found that, sure enough, you could classify the alarm calls into terrestrial alarm calls and aerial alarm calls. But it still sounded sort of different. Mm -hmm. And there I started to think about contradicting accepted wisdom and accepted theory, because at that time, nobody thought that animals were capable of having language. Right. Nobody thought that animals were capable of any sort of complexity in their communication system.
0: Well, and, and I'm sure it was the eminent authorities at the time who had decided that that was the case.
1: Absolutely. That was the received word of eminent authority <laughs> that you don't have that.
0: Right. Well, anyway, so it's really fascinating how your early experience... It served you well later, as you as you started to study language, and you know before we dig into a lot of that prairie dog research, which I, as you know, I'm familiar with. Correct. Um, I'll 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 let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, in a little bit. I wanted to, you know, there are two things that struck me about what you what you said about your experience as a child. You know, I was born in Italy, and and I spoke both English, I learned both English and Italian at the same time.
1: And you didn't stutter, I bet.
0: I didn't, and that's because I didn't have to do the conversion in my head. I have subsequently forgotten Italian, and when I was retaking lessons, it was excruciatingly slow because I would think in English, try to find the word in Italian, and then spit it out. And then when my teacher was speaking Italian, I had to take the Italian and then just convert it into English, then convert back to Italian to respond. And And so even though I used to speak the language now, it it doesn't flow easily. But, you know, my in my family, my mom speaks four languages. She learned three of them at once uh, and, you know, she didn't stutter. But (laughs) the the other thing that shows the incredible bias when it comes to language, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, what you said about programmed to speak English, right? That, that we're supposed to be genetically programmed to speak English, which is weird, but I went to Brazil and my uncle had parents at the time. And now he taught them to speak German (laughs) or he spoke German to them and they spoke German back. And when I went and, and visited, I remember thinking, my goodness, These parents don't speak English. (laughs) I couldn't believe that they spoke German and not English, as if the only language that another animal would ever speak (laughs) would be English.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And you know, and I remember saying to him, "How is it that when they speak, they don't speak English, they speak German?" And he I was young. Let's just let say that. I was young. <laughs> and he thought that was the silliest thing. Of course, they speak German because I
1: speak German. <laughs> yes, obviously all animals must speak English.
0: (laughs) Right. That was, that was my, um, you know, inexperienced uh, and uneducated sort of automatic uh, assumption was that if they spoke any language, it would certainly be English. Um, And, but I'm not, I was not an eminent uh, psychiatrist or psychologist. So, Um, before we get back to language and some of the work on prairie dogs that, that you, and and the experiences you've had in, and understanding their, their language and the complexity that they have, uh, before we do that, there is a question I like to ask and that I'm asking all of my guests because this show is about connection. And in fact, this topic of language and communication, uh, is really such a deep connection we have with ourselves, each other, and with with other species. And so I'm wondering, do you have a special way of feeling connected to nature?
1: I guess that I have always felt connected to nature. And again, that probably relates back to my childhood, when I was in China as a child, my grandparents were living with my parents and with me, and my grandfather was a surgeon. He liked the animals, and veterinarians were in really short supply in China. So people would bring him all kinds of injured animals. They would bring him something like a bobcat. I remember a bobcat wandering around the apartment. (laughs) They would bring him various birds where he would try to fix the wing of the bird. They'd bring him all kinds of other animals. I remember a porcupine at one point parading through the house. So I had a lot of animals around me. And at the same time... My father also liked animals, and he would bring me all kinds of animals that he saw on the street. And these were mainly insects. So I still remember that he brought me a praying mantis that to me looked like it was about three feet long. Oh, my God. In actual fact, I've learned that it was only about nine inches long. (laughs) But to a little kid, it seemed huge. Sure. Sure. And I remember reaching for the praying mantis and having the thing leisurely extend out its claws, its front legs, which have razor sharp teeth on them and slicing through a part of my thumb. And I still have the scar on my thumb from my encounter with the praying mantis. So I grew up around animals. And then when I moved to the States, There was a lot of vacant land all around the house where my parents lived. And so while other kids were out playing cops and robbers and things like that, I was lifting up boards and rocks and looking at salamanders and lizards and various beetles and all kinds of things. So I've had a connection with nature pretty much all of my life.
0: Wow. That's great. You know, it's interesting cause I was very similar, uh, except it sounds like y- your, your family was more supportive of your um, curiosity and investigation <laughs> of, of, uh, other animals. I, I had mice and, you know, I was fascinated. I was dig up in the yard. I found a skeleton of a seahorse. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. And I didn't, I couldn't figure out how it got there. Um, but you know, uh, it was not, I would say that my bringing home things to show was not as, um, as appreciated, perhaps, <laughs> as, as in your family. So it's nice that they cultivated and shared. They had a similar sort of passion for, for animals and cultivated that in you. Um,
1: yeah, the only thing that my mother put uh, on the kibosh, there was bringing home snakes. Yeah, she didn't like snakes. And I tried to explain to her that these snakes are perfectly harmless, but she wasn't having any of it. So I guess that's why I never went into herpetology.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I just learned uh, after talking to Dr. Julie Meacham in the first episode that um, snakes, uh, some snakes uh, walk their jaws over their prey.
1: Yes, and, they do.
0: And I've, I feel very uncomfortable with that. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I also didn't know that a praying mantis can slice a, 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 an appendage so hard on a human that you have, have a scar so many years later. That's amazing.
1: Well, I didn't think it was amazing at the time. (laughs) I I imagine not. Did it hurt? Oh, yes, it did hurt. Okay. Taught me to be very careful.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, we shouldn't necessarily go around touching any animal we want. They they might not appreciate it.
1: (laughs) They might not appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So, okay. Going back to language and and the the path you went down in terms of your, you're doing all your research on, on prairie dogs. And, uh, and now I will disclose. So you were my, uh, I, my advisor for one of my degrees and introduced me to the wonderful world of prairie dogs and prairie dog language. And you mentioned that at the time that you were starting this investigation, the, the, kind of paradigm was that other animals don't have language. Any communication they make is just reactionary to emotional states of fear or, or, or something like that. Very basic. Um, you know, why do you think, well, I guess, uh, what did you start to discover about the reality of language in other species with your work on prairie dogs? <laughs>
1: Well, one thing that I started to discover with the work with prairie dogs is that uh, they actually did have very complicated sounds, which could be equivalent to words. And they could string them together into meaningful kinds of phrases, such as uh, the tall, thin man in blue walking slowly or things like that. Mm-hmm. But this was essentially a, a no-no as far as academic wisdom went at the time. And so it was very, very difficult to publish any papers along those lines because people would say, I used the wrong microphone. I used the wrong statistical analysis. I did the experimental design wrong. I did this wrong. I did that wrong because everybody knows that this is impossible.
0: Right. And, and for people out there listening, they may not realize how when you go up against the, you know, Eminent experts that came before you uh, and their conclusions about what the world is like, um, it, it creates a tremendous amount of of resistance to new ideas, to shifts in thinking with new evidence. And people may not realize that that happens in science. And there was a lot of controversy about your results. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, generally speaking, uh, people were interested in the idea, but they felt that this was something that was an example of my wasting my time. And I have to caution the listeners that I was smart enough not to take this up until after I got tenure (laughs) at my university. Instead of taking it up beforehand, because that probably would have gotten me fired. But people generally were scoffing at this whole idea. And all along, actually, uh, even after we published paper after paper after paper on this, there was this skepticism. For example, one of my colleagues John Placer, who is a computer scientist, and I looked at the alarm calls and he figured out a program so that we can dissect the alarm calls into components that are called phonemes. If you're not familiar with the concept of phonemes, phonemes are the smallest unit of sound in a language, and they're combined into larger units called morphemes which are the smallest units of meaning. And those are combined into words or sentences. Okay. So we showed that prairie dog alarm calls consist of phonemes and that there were the same phonemes used for the different alarm calls. They were just used in different proportions, exactly the same way as English uses phonemes or any other human language uses phonemes. So we were excited about this. And we wrote a paper and submitted it to a journal. And the journal wrote back, the editor wrote back and said, we like your paper. We're willing to publish it, but we will not publish it if you use the term phonemes. Mm. Because phonemes are only happening in human languages and not in animals. So we had to change the name of the paper from phonemes in the alarm calls of prairie dogs to acoustic structures in the (laughs) alarm calls of prairie dogs. Now, tell me what an acoustic structure is. I have no idea. I can tell you what a phoneme is. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's very similar to what's happening now with personality. They want to call it behavioral syndrome because only people have personalities um, because it has the word person in it.
1: Sure, um, you know, so okay, so now and actually, if I could just oh, make so- an aside about personality when you and I wrote our book on prairie dogs, yes, I had a section on there about personality in prairie dogs, and one of the reviewers wrote a long, three page letter to the editor. Or the publisher at this particular, uh, with this particular book, pointing out how this was the Jane Goodallization of animal behavior, Mm -hmm. that animals do not have personalities. And it's only people like Jane Goodall that ascribe personalities to animals. Now, we know subsequently that none of this is true. Jane Goodall was absolutely right. Of course.
0: And, and the same is true with your work on prairie dogs. And, and, you know, before we sort of broaden out to a lot of other species and, and talk about your book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Learning the Language of Animals, I, I wanted to sort of get your take on why do you think it's, it was so controversial? Like what is so threatening do you think? Or, or why do you think there's so much resistance to accepting and acknowledging uh, these places and, and things where we're similar with other species? We are animals after all.
1: We are, but many humans, particularly philosophers and linguists and many biologists, like to think that there is us and then there's the rest of the animals. And there's a huge gulf between us and the rest of the animals. So we are so superior and the rest of the poor animals are falling short. Mm -hmm. So they like to think of this as a gulf and you can go to a bookstore now, assuming that anybody goes to bookstores anymore, but you can go to a bookstore now and pick up a book having to do with humans and it will talk about humans being the only ones capable of having language. So there is this philosophical divide that people make between humans and the rest of the animals. And they find it very threatening to think that the rest of the animals could do things that humans could do. If you look back in time, some time ago, maybe 50 years ago or, or so Books on anthropology would say, man, the tool user, quaintly using man instead of humans. Correct. And then we found out, and Jane Goodall was one of those people who found out this, that a variety of animals use tools. Yeah. So that fell by the wayside.
0: Yeah, Uh I mean, yeah, even even the warty pig.
1: Uh, Right. He uses tools. Yeah. And crows and all kinds of animals use tools. So, okay. So what do we find that sets us apart from all the rest of the animals? Well, one possibility was we have culture. They don't. Mm Mm-hmm. And so maybe 30 years ago or or 20 years ago, you could see papers saying that we're the only ones with culture and other animals don't have culture. And then, as is usually the case with animal behavior and observing animals, once people started to look at this, they found, lo and behold, some animals have culture. Uh Uh-oh, that caused that idea to crumble. So what are we left with now? That sets us apart. Oh, well, animal language. We have language they don't. Right. So that's sort of the last bastion that people can come up with that sets us apart from them, the animals. And that's why I think that it's so hard for people to accept this idea.
0: Right. Well, and it's interesting, right, because there's lots of different elements of language. And and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience, you know, as we've broken down elements of language like grammar and syntax and then discovered that, whoops, other animals do have grammar and do have syntax. There's an order to their um, to their their communication, their language. And in fact, I remember a study on zebra finches that showed if you scrambled their calls, their songs, they get very upset. It's, <laughs> it's not ordered right. properly. Right. And And so then they get even further, deeper into the weeds, as I would call it, uh, about splicing up certain linguistic skills and abilities like, well, because I remember a linguist telling me, well, animals do not have language because they can't say my brother's cousin's sister. And there's a name for that kind of Reference, and I don't remember the specific
1: component. It's called called recursion. In in a simpler way, recursion is John went to the store, and then you add another clause. John, who is Mary's brother, went to the store. And then you add another clause. John, who is Mary's brother, who is Sally's sister, went to the store, and so on and so on. Okay. And so that was one of the moving goalposts once... People, including our work with prairie dogs, started to show that we showed all of the essential elements of language that linguists said you had to find in an animal language for it to be considered a language. Then the goalposts started to move. And one of the ways it was moved was that animals don't have recursion. Well, whoops, they do. Oh, no, they do. Tell me which one. Or which ones? Starlings have recursions in their calls. And and now we're finding the possibility of other animals having recursion in their calls, where they just add more and more complexity that refers to different things. So that has fallen by the wayside, too. and, And now some of these language deniers are probably scratching their heads, thinking what else they can come up with.
0: Well, I think they need to go with the flat earth uh, people and, uh, you know, the round earth deniers, (laughs) uh, they need to go that way where, where, uh, they need to belong to that group because I, I agree. I think we've, you know, continually moving a goalpost to hang on to, you know, to cling to this idea that, um, humans are, are are so fundamentally different from non-human animals is a bit. Uh, it's getting a bit ridiculous. Now, I want to talk about your book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Learning the Language of Animals. Um, tell us what motivated you to write that book and and what are some of the core you know, a, a, a features that you want to share about the language of other animals?
1: What really motivated me to write the book was that I've been doing all of this stuff with prairie dog language. And it occurred to me that prairie dogs surely can't be unique in the world. There must be other animals that have similar kinds of abilities or that we must have some evidence pointing to the possibility of similar kinds of abilities. So I started to look through the literature to see what else I can find about Animals. And I was amazed to find that we have abundant evidence in the scientific literature that a lot of animals either have language or have language like abilities. And in the book, which is written for a popular audience, I have something like 250 references from the scientific literature, but none of these people actually called it language. Mm -hmm. They referred to it as communication or some other aspect other than language. So even though we have all of this abundant information about animals either having language or having language-like properties, no one was willing to call it that. And actually in my book, I have a disclaimer at the beginning saying that I've used all of these references, but I want to make clear that the people who wrote these papers will probably disagree with my interpretation of their work.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. I, I, I face uh, similar challenges when, as you know, I write about uh, the similarities and differences between ourselves and other species on a variety of topics, from sure. dating to families. And, you know, I, I zoomorphize people, I don't anthropomorphize animals. That's my perspective. Um, is is to show you the places where you're just like a praying mantis or you're just like a prairie dog. Um, And and so, you know, I'm curious, what do you think are the implications of language in other species? What does that mean?
1: Well, I think that there are several possibilities in terms of how to look at this. One of the um, one of the the places that I interact with people has just put out a call for looking at patterns in the world. And, and these are people who are involved in tech, they're involved in finance, they're involved in a variety of things. And I was thinking, what is the pattern that we can see with studying animal language and animal cognition? Is it just something that is done for academic interest and nothing else that gets put on a shelf someplace and and forgotten? Or does it actually have any broader meaning? And something that I wrote up for them on their website is this pattern that I see, which is that As we study animal language and as we study animal cognition, we find that more and more people start to empathize with animals. And this is something that I found when I was giving talks about prairie dogs to people, that I would talk about how prairie dogs were... Slipping into the endangered list, we have something like 1% to 2% of the prairie dogs that we had 120 years ago, and they're rapidly disappearing because they're shot, they're poisoned, they're susceptible to diseases and so on, and people's eyes would glaze over. They've heard this story about lions, tigers, elephants, you name it, they've heard the story. But when I talk about how prairie dogs have a language and they can communicate to each other about details of what the predator looks like, where the predator is going and so on, people's eyes light up and they say, oh, maybe they're just like us. Maybe we shouldn't be poisoning them after all. So I found that people start to empathize with animals once they know that animals are More like us in terms of having language and in terms of having thinking ability, and maybe possibly having dreams and hopes and aspirations of their own. Right. So, what that does is that shifts more people over to vegetarianism and veganism. And that in turn means that what is happening in places like South America, where they used to clear out vast tr- tracts of forest so that they could raise cattle and sheep. That's no longer happening because there isn't that much of a market anymore or as much of a market for some of these larger herbivores as before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that one of the things I agree with you, I think one of the biggest things that this kind of work does is is create empathy um, because you can't empathize with something you can't relate to,
1: right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and this gives people the possibility of relating to animals in a completely different way from what they used to relate to.
0: Right, and I know that you found that, Prairie dogs uh, have dialects. Did that surprise people? Like when you're talking to uh, uh, you know, an, a reg- uh, an audience full of just regular people, um, are, they, are they shocked to learn that, that a- another animal like a prairie dog has different dialects depending on where they live?
1: Yes, they're quite shocked by that. Uh, they never thought that this is something that would be possible for an animal communication system. And we have been finding now dialects in a variety of different animals. The most recent study has shown that there are even dialects in naked mole rats. We now know that a variety of animals have dialects. And again, this is a parallel to what happens with humans. Right, that humans have dialects. So why shouldn't other animals have dialects as well? But this is one of the first things that people ask me, well, do they have dialects? And I'm able to say, yes, they do. Right.
0: <laughs> and I'm curious, do you think, um, well, so there's some, you know, I'm going to bring up um, bunny, the dog. Uh, and, and I know you've done a lot of work on dogs and I want to talk about um, Zulingua too. And, um, but, you know, one of the things that they're looking into uh, with now with animal language is uh, do they have sort of a temporal uh, and spatial displacement with their language? And do they have the ability to make observations and, and create narratives? So having studied language in other animals for such a long time, you know, what, is you, what do you think? Do you think that other species form narratives about the world around them and the other individuals that they interact with?
1: I'm quite sure that they do, because after all, why would they not? But, you know, to go back to Bunny the Dog, uh, I just read a book by Christina Hunter who talks about her dog, Stella. And Christina is the first one to use this kind of technology of having buttons that a dog could press. And in her book, Christina, Stina talks about how she is a speech therapist who used this kind of therapy with autistic kids to get the autistic kids to learn to formulate sentences using these buttons. How she thought that perhaps her dog Stella could learn this kind of thing, too. And over time, she... Increase the number of buttons that were available to Stella so that at the end of the book, Stella has 29 buttons that are available to her, wow. and Stella can now formulate sentences such as uh, "Go outside to the beach to play." <laughs> wow! <laughs> well, and so that shows that the dog has the cognitive capability to string things together into a sentence, into basically an idea, a concept.
0: Yeah. And he, so some, something comes up for me about this, which is first to, just to kind of give the listeners a sense of, of what you're talking about and what the story of Bunny the Dog is. It's using these uh, buttons that are on the floor and that can be pressed. And when they're pressed, they emit a word and they Correct. can right the pre-recorded buttons sound off uh, and then the the, as the dog presses the buttons, they, they, when it's done, it'll put it out in the order in which they were pressed. And so you get the exact order in which the dog pressed the buttons to create the sentence. And, you know, I think that I'd love to talk about why people might believe that dogs have language and communicate but other animals don't and why they are so desperate to communicate with their their companion animals but i also wonder if it can start to make owners feel uncomfortable because now you have to recognize and reconcile that your companion animal has thoughts, opinions, desires and interests and can make requests now and what you know, how do you deal with that if you don't you know do you know what I mean?
1: Sure. Uh one of the basic things that it challenges is do we see these companion animals as property these days? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, many animals are given over to humane societies if say something happens, uh, people change their furniture and the animal doesn't fit the decor of the furniture. Well, they get rid of the animal or it's inconvenient to keep the animal. They get rid of the animal. So now it raises the ethical question that is a companion animal property or is it a partner? And so this down the road, I think, will create a lot of ethical dilemmas for people. And particularly as we start expanding our technology, and that's one of the things that I'm doing with Zoolingua is using artificial intelligence technology to decipher the language of dogs. But eventually that can be transformed into deciphering the language of other animals as well. And so down the road, as we start deciphering the language of a variety of different animals and finding that they do have thoughts of their own and they do have requests and they do have opinions, that is the way that we treat animals really the best way to do it now. Right. And I look to the day when we can start treating animals as partners rather than as property and chattel.
0: I completely agree. And, and the irony is, right, for, um, for, for Bunny the dog and was it Stella?
1: Yes, Stella. Yeah,
0: Stella is that they're being taught English. And I think what you're doing is taking their own natural language and trying to translate that for us. Right,
1: right. Because, you know, this keyboard idea is not a, a new idea. Because we have uh, Kanzi, the bonobo, Mm -hmm. who has been using keyboards that uh, have symbols on them instead of words or instead of buttons. We have people trying to come up with keyboards for dolphins so that the dolphins could underwater press the keyboard with various symbols on it and convey concepts. So this is not really a, a new concept, but it seems to me that a different approach and perhaps a somewhat better approach is to try to decipher the animal's natural language. Right. You know, it's sort of like, in to go back to my childhood there, when I was struggling to speak English in school, people taught me English instead of saying, oh, wait, you speak Russian, so why don't we get somebody who speaks Russian and they can tell you what it's all about.
0: Right. And allow you the time to practice and learn. Exactly. You know, so that, that you didn't, instead of being sort of uh, isolated and and placed into a a separate place that did nothing to help you integrate to a different language. Uh, And I think, I wonder, you know, how, how limited we are in, grasping the full extent of the linguistic capabilities of other animals by trying to do exactly the same thing, forcing them into speaking English or using English. Um, and so I, what I love about the work you're doing is, is instead of being anthropocentric about it, um, really and that's why your company's called Zulingua. It's really it's focused on the animals, and right. and that's that's a really wonderful thing. And you know we've danced around the topic of cognition, and I'd I'd like to uh, shift to that a little bit because you know, I think when we think about intelligence and cognition, it's another one of those areas where we rank um, ourselves high and everything else in order of how it compares to us. And some research, I think, on one of the most what people might consider to be the most unlikely um, species, although I, I I don't think so, is crows. They are upending. They're like the prairie dogs of the sky right, right. <laughs> because they're upending everything that we think about for cognition and intelligence. They they hold grudges. They they understand analogies. They have self-control, which must mean you have to have some kind of emotional intelligence. Sure. Um, they create tools, they play um, and and all of these are components of what we call intelligence. and so so talk about about that a little bit in terms of of where we are in our understanding of cognition and intelligence in other species.
1: I have two things about this that I'd like to say. One is that we have assumed for a long time that other animals really don't have very great cognitive capacities. And even now we're willing to accept that crows might have really super cognitive capacities. We know that dogs and cats do and so on, but for the rest of the animals, we don't really give them very much credence. And there again, I think it boils down to what it is that you're willing to observe with animals within a particular paradigm. For a long time, people thought that only male birds were the ones who sung. Mm -hmm. And now we find out, particularly with women investigators looking at female birds, that female birds sing. I think that once you expand the paradigm, that you will find that there are a lot of animals with all kinds of cognitive capabilities. The other thing that I can say is that animals, if we accept the evolutionary premise that they evolved into a particular habitat, animals evolve into something that makes sense for them and lets them survive in that particular habitat and thrive. And so, We shouldn't necessarily expect exactly the same cognition that we have to be found in other animals. Other animals might have different ways of approaching problems from us that make sense for them and that makes sense for their lives, just like the way that we approach problems for us makes sense for our lives. So, I think that once again, we are willing to measure everything according to the human standard. And the human standard is not necessarily the only standard that's the only game in town. For example, I was talking to a person who told me that he doesn't think that dolphins are very smart. Mm -hmm. And I said, Tell me why and he said well dolphins have never developed nuclear weapons and we have and i didn't reply but my thought was does that really make them dumber than us or does that make them smarter than us
0: <laughs> well yeah i i agree so if if we're are we measuring intelligence by the ability to self-destruct right um if that's the case, then we're off the charts. But I agree. I don't know that that's intelligent at all. And, and, you know, and then there's different kinds of intelligence and emotional intelligence. I would say, I would predict um, con that as we you know, keep uncovering more and more of the cognitive abilities and problem solving and causal relationship, you know, uh, uh, skills that other animals have the next thing on the chopping block will be well, but, but they don't have emotional intelligence. Sure. Right. Right. Um, And of course, that, you know, given that emotional intelligence is currently... Uh, defined, at least by Wikipedia, as the ability to identify, use, understand, manage emotions, communicate and empathize and diffuse conflict, I think you and I can already say, uh, create a list of species that do that already.
1: Absolutely. Right.
0: And right. and so you'd have to then redefine emotional
1: intelligence. Uh, sure. To keep the... The other thing that uh, people point out all the time is that uh, animals such as birds and reptiles and so on don't have a neocortex. And also a favorite is the uh, body mass to brain size ratio. Oh, yes. Yes. And uh, people point out that, okay, well, we have a greater uh, brain mass to body mass ratio than a variety of animals do. And my point about that, and I've been saying that for years, is that it is not the size of the brain necessarily, it is the wiring in the brain that is important. And we're now finding out a couple of studies published in Science Magazine just a couple of months ago have shown that the wiring in bird brains is different, but it is the functional equivalent of a neocortex in mammals. So the wiring makes a difference. You know, when I first started working in uh, science at my university, they had a computer that filled an entire room and it had the staggering memory, memory capacity of 8K bytes. <laughs> right. And my cell phone now, which sits in my pocket, has something like a quadrillion Times that memory capacity, and it doesn't fill an entire room. So it's the wiring, how you wire things, that is really important for intelligence and for cognition, and not necessarily the size of a particular brain structure.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of things that that is true for, not just cognition and and uh, intelligence. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I think that. Again, just like with language, accepting that there's high level of cognition and intelligence, including emotional intelligence, creates a conundrum, uh, you know, a dissonance in how we interact with other animals and the impact on their well-being. If we acknowledge the, that they are fundamentally not that different from us.
1: Absolutely. Sure. Um And there again, if we have a different paradigm, we start finding out different things. But as long as we have the paradigm that we are so superior to the rest of the animals and they couldn't possibly do the same kinds of things that we do, then we're not going to be able to see many of those things.
0: Right. And the same is true when we think about the behavior of males and females. And we could take that from prairie dogs to birds to humans as well.
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh, So it's, you know, in in fact, let let me just say one thing about prairie dogs to go back to that, uh, that initially we knew that prairie dogs live in territories, and you were instrumental in a lot of this work. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And uh, we also knew that prairie dog females had a very narrow time in which they could mate and conceive pups. It was something like five hours in one day in one year. Right. What we didn't know was that females... Would go from one territory into another and mate with multiple males. So that when they would have a litter of four or five pups, the pups would have multiple paternity. They wouldn't be just sired by one male, they'd be sometimes sired by multiple males. And when this was first coming out and this was a study by one of my graduate students using somewhat um, elementary DNA analysis at the time, not like the sophisticated analysis that you used, but still with that kind of elementary analysis, it showed indeed that the likelihood was very high that females would sneak into other males' territories and mate with them. Mm -hmm. Now, when we tried to publish that, the papers were rejected because everybody said, all of the reviewers said, we know that that's not the way that territoriality works. (laughs) And it's impossible for females to go around and mate with other males in other territories. They just (laughs) don't do that. Females just can't do that.
0: Yes, we we are, you know, other animals may construct narratives. We definitely create narratives about other animals and how they're supposed to behave. And prairie dogs, especially the females, did not read the handbook of behavior. For prairie dogs, and right. and I, I imagine you know, since the majority of scientists, you know, you know, prior to your work, uh, you know, the, the narrative was generated by males, uh, and we never, we seem to, many men seem uncomfortable with the idea that females will run off and sneak into other territories, sure. um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so yeah, I think that it's unequivocal uh, uh, now whether. It's Still uh, uh, accepted as the the standard is another issue, um, but it is unequivocal. And and I'm actually doing some work now on blacktail prairie dogs, where some of the other um, ideas that you and I and, and that you inspired me to pursue, in terms of how groups form and how flexible they are, and and whether or not they're made of, of relatives or not, you know. Cool. Yeah, we're seeing the same things in blacktail prairie dogs. They haven't read the book either um, <laughs> on how they're supposed to act. So, so more will be coming out about that. But you know, this is one of the fun things I think about science is is you know you take an experience that you had as a child and it it leads you down this path and and the creativity. You know, I think a lot of people. Think that science is very uh, clinical and very, you know, uh, logical and it, and it is, but there's such a creative element, I think, to science. And, and what I've noticed is myself, you and, and many other of my friends and colleagues are not just scientists, but artists. So, you know, tell us a little. Well, first of all, do you think that, um, science has been a creative pursuit for you as well?
1: Oh, sure. It definitely is a creative pursuit where you look at patterns and you try to fit patterns in your mind and come up with ideas and uh, things may not be cut and dry, but then you have some intuitive flashes and you go out and you test those and so on. So it definitely is an artistic endeavor as much as it is uh, purely logical rigid scientific endeavor. So yes, of course. And uh, there have been many scientists who have achieved a lot of prominence in their field who have been either artists or have collected art or have been musicians uh, or uh, have done some other kind of artistic or creative endeavor in addition to their scientific work.
0: Yeah, and you're no exception. So so tell us a little bit about your art and what inspires you.
1: I just enjoy taking photographs. I used to enjoy painting, but then I found that I could never get the painting to come out looking the way that I had in my mind, which was probably just a matter of lack of practice more than anything else. But I really didn't have time to practice. But with Photography, I can take an image and using the wonders of Photoshop and Lightroom, I can manipulate the image to have it come out looking more like what I have in mind. And what I particularly have in mind are images that I call Zen images, which are fairly simplified images coming from some aspect of nature that uh, have an emotional resonance when people look at them. But they're simple the way that Zen painting is simple. So I really enjoy doing that.
0: That, that's amazing. And I'm actually going to put a link to your website. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, art, uh, abstracts, photography.com. I'll put a link in the show notes and, and I'll also put a link in the show notes uh, for chasing Dr. Doolittle. And of course your, your website, uh, conslabachikoff.com. I, you know, it's been a real treat for me to, to have you on my podcast because, the reason I am a scientist is because I was lucky enough to get to work with you and um, and you, you are just an incredible person. You are an incredible mentor. And I, I, I am so thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk about language, uh, cognition and, and all of your work. So thank you for being on the show. Well,
1: thank you. And I can say that I was lucky enough that you were one of my graduate students.
0: Thank you. That's it for this episode. And I just want to close with saying that a lot of us already know that our companion animals communicate with us. Whether it's cats or dogs, they've been smart enough to develop unique vocalizations reserved just for talking to us. For example, cats don't meow at each other. That's just for us. It's almost as if they realized us silly humans can't speak their language, so they've worked out a way to talk to us. People like Konzlobodzikov are working to develop tools that will help us better understand their language. Perhaps then we can stop trying to make other species speak human language as a criteria for having language. Science is finally catching up with better tools and creative minds to reveal just how connected we really are. That's why this podcast is called Wild Connection. For now, you can find out more about today's podcast in the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelen.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. And please, if you're enjoying the show, subscribe and share it so others can find it and enjoy it too. Thanks for listening, everyone, and tune in next week for my conversation with Katie Prudic about butterflies, the pandas of the sky.